Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degler, and today we are going to talk about the role of a VC in times of crisis and hear an alternative opinion on the governmental bailouts for startups. This is actually an unusually VC-heavy episode of the podcast, but I do hope that you are going to find it useful and interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by Lark. If you are working remotely, you might be tired of having your calls cut short because you're not paying. Lark is a collaboration suite that provides free video calls for teams with unlimited minutes. On Lark you can enjoy smooth and reliable calls for up to 100 participants as well as advanced screen sharing. You can even co-edit documents with teammates from right within the video call window itself. It's a great experience. Get Lark for free today at larksuite.com techeu. Again, that's larksuite.com techeu. So, in fact, both interviews that I wanted to share with you today, they came along as a response to something that we ran on TechEU previously. In a bit, you will hear from Fred Destin of Stride VC, who disagreed with an opinion piece that we featured earlier. And later on, Richard Muirhead of Fabric will explain why he does not share the negative opinion of Ton van Acht from our podcast episode number 164. That was about governmental support for startups. All that comes in just a couple of minutes after an overview of the most important news stories by Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. JustEatTakeaway.com, the company created by the merger of the Dutch food delivery behemoth Takeaway.com and the UK-born Just Eat, has picked up an extra 700 million euro through issuing new shares in convertible bonds. The company mentioned in the press release that part of the fresh funding will be used to quote partially pay down revolving credit facilities currently utilized by both Just Eat and Takeaway.com, as well as to be ready to quote act on strategic opportunities which may arise. On the same day, the UK's Competition Market Authority announced that it's finally cleared the 6.2 billion pound merger deal itself. This follows an investigation in which the CMA looked at whether Takeaway.com would have entered the UK market if it didn't merge with Just Eat. It seems like the robotic process automation market is still going strong in the face of an economic downturn. Here's a story from VentureBeat to prove that. UK-based Blue Prism has announced that it has raised £100 million at a valuation of about £1 billion. Chair and CEO Jason Kingdon says the fresh capital will be used to strengthen the company's balance sheet while allowing investment in its automation suite. Blue Prism was founded in 2001 launched its first commercial product in 2003, and started trading publicly on the London Stock Exchange in 2016. The UK government has announced a £1.25 billion package to support startups with the current COVID-19 pandemic, UKTN reports. It includes a £500 million investment fund for high-growth companies impacted by the crisis, made up of funding from the government and the private sector. The UK-based startups can get from £125,000 to £5 million from the funds, with private investors at least matching the government commitment, Finextra explains. To be eligible, a business must be an unlisted UK-registered company that has raised at least £250,000 in equity investment within the last five years. The rest of the fund, that is £750 million, will be given out as grants and loans to SMEs that are focusing on research and development. France has asked Apple to remove a technical obstacle that it says is delaying a government contact tracing application, Bloomberg reports. iOS prevents contact tracing apps using Bluetooth from running constantly in the background if that data is going to be moved off of the device, which is a limit designed to protect users' privacy. That limitation is standing in the way of the type of app that France wants to build, digital minister Cedric O said. 
Earlier, Google and Apple announced a contact tracing system of their own, which relies on smartphones' Bluetooth connections and will allow users to keep data on their handsets. However, France and the European Union want to feed the data to a central server, managed by state health services, which would alert users if they come into contact with a person infected by COVID-19. A survey among Belgian startups paints a bleak post-COVID-19 picture. Support Our Startups, an initiative that demands governmental support for Belgian startups, polled close to 200 entrepreneurs to learn more about the impact of the crisis on their businesses. Almost 80% say they experienced a significant revenue loss in March 2020, with almost a quarter of respondents signaling a revenue decrease of 75% or above. Almost two-thirds of the companies say they are currently looking for any type of bridge financing that can help them into calmer waters. Without external funding, almost half of the respondents expect to run out of money within the next six months. Lime is reactivating small fleets of its e-scooters in more than 10 cities around the world, including Berlin, Cologne, Paris, Rimini, and Tel Aviv. The company says that it's offering free 30-minute rides for public health personnel and law enforcement officers, though it's not clear whether that applies outside of the U.S. For the rest of the customers, Lime emphasizes that the e-scooters should be used for essential rides, like going to the grocery store, pharmacy, or a healthcare institution. The company also encourages riders to wear gloves where possible and use hand sanitizer after they arrive at their final destination. These were some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of April 20th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Thank you so much, Annie, for this overview. So let's get going and talk about the role of a venture capitalist in the time of crisis. How much, if at all, should you control your portfolio companies? To dig into that, let me introduce our first guest. My name is Fred Destin. I'm co-founded a seed stage fund called Stride VC with my partner and friend Harry Stebbings about two years ago. And so we focused really on backing uh, companies only in the UK and France, who so were very geographically focused, um, and then help them bridge to the US, which is one of our core specialties. And I've been doing venture for about 20 years. I would say it's my craft, my passion, my hobby. So very fortunate in that sense that I absolutely love company building and, and working with entrepreneurs. So it's uh, I derive a lot of joy and fun from it. All right. And what did you do before starting uh, Stride AC? Uh, so I was a general partner at Excel, mm -hmm. which is, of course, much larger funds. So back to companies like Deliveroo, uh, Kawa, Pelpak. And then for 10 years, I was in another seed stage fund, which is now called Accomplice, uh, both in the UK and Boston. So back to companies at seed like Secret Escapes, uh, Zoopla, Pelpak, which is sold to Amazon, and, and a bunch of others. And uh, yeah, I've been doing this since 99. So in the days of the great bubble, uh, I jumped into seed investing at the time and just learned on the job. And uh, last uh, background question. Uh, I can understand the UK because you're based there, but why France as a geographic focus? Well, so we decided we, we love being surprised by what entrepreneurs come up with. So we're sort of anti-thematic in a way. Uh, we try to be very mentally plastic and be completely open to, to, to weird ideas. Um, but because we're quite broad, we decided to be geographically quite narrow. So we started in London and then found that we could cover, credibly cover one more hub and decided to do Paris. And we added a third partner called Pia. We used to work with me at Excel, and so we cover essentially cover two cities, but try to do it well. 
Okay, let's dig into it then. So the the main reason why I reached out uh, to talk to today was uh, uh, the mini discussion on uh, Twitter, uh, where you uh, very much uh, disagreed with uh, one of the opinion pieces that we uh, ran recently. So it was a piece by Shmuel Shafetz, who argued that, and I will quote here, venture capitalists must use boards to exercise oversight and guard against excess, the quote ends. So can you walk me through uh, your logic and reasoning here? Why do you think that that's not the right way to, to do well, there's a part of the statement I agree with, which is I think the the oversight role actually is important. And in fact, a lot of founders will say, I enjoy having accountability to my board because it kind of helps people be structured. What I quite fundamentally disagreed with is this notion of excess and oversight and the way it was framed. In my experience, you know, founders, for example, say they miss their numbers for the quarter. You know, they're thinking about missing their numbers way more, and they probably have been losing sleep for the last few weeks, um, way more than their board members would. And um, in my experience, founders are very good stewards of the capital that they're given. In other words, you know, they're uh, reliable businessmen. They uh, care a lot about the use of cash. They care a lot about the survival of their company. And I think fundamentally, the role of the board is not so much one of control in startups, but it's one of you know, helping founders make the right decisions in conditions of uncertainty. And so this notion of control and excess is something I fundamentally disagreed with because it doesn't represent my experience. And also because I I just don't think fundamentally that's what we do. We help people think laterally about the problems they're facing. We try and be a, a cool level-headed influence uh, when, when the going gets tough, such as in the crisis. And I also think control is an illusion, actually. <laughs> uh, so I think fundamentally... Uh, it, it's kind of misguided because you don't control much of anything as a board member. What you do is influence direction, help people make the right decisions. And the only way in which you really exercise control at the end of the day is decided, deciding who runs the company. In other words, the board's number one job is deciding who's CEO. But in my experience, you know, I hate replacing founders. When we replace founders, we always lose uh, the kind of magic that comes with the company. Uh, and we would much rather give a founder time to grow into the role of a CEO, if that's not their background, rather than think about uh, replacing founders. So we try and back people that can go all the way. And if they're not perfect, because nobody's perfect, we focus more on putting the right players in the field and giving them the infrastructure they need and then helping them grow as people so that they can manage their business all the way to a successful exit. So there is a lot of the tone in that piece that I disagreed with. Um, and in fact, you know, toxic boards, especially boards that are predicated on control, tend to destroy or damage companies extremely reliably. And I've, I've lived through that a few times in my career so i felt um i felt almost emotional about the topic which is the, this is not the right ethos for you know vcs and founders to engage and i'd much rather think of myself as a business partner you know who's helping someone build the best possible company rather than some kind of control uh and oversight function Right. Yeah. Now I do. Uh, I do see uh, where you're coming from, and I'm just gonna play a bit of a devil's advocate, I guess, in, the, in, this, in this case. But I mean, it's a great thing to believe in that the founders are uh, great stewards of the capital they are given by the VCs and other investors. But 
At the same time, it's not really unheard of uh, that uh, certain uh, decisions, uh, uh, certain wrong decisions, would be uh, would have been made uh, by uh, uh, founders uh, and uh, who would have to that would have to be corrected in one way or the other. And I don't want to wave the uh, WeWork example again because I do I do understand it's uh, it's it's not something that we can see in any startup. But I mean, there are examples of that. So how do you how would you still work with this sort of situation? Well, so the first point to make on that would be that you have to establish a relationship of trust. And the relationship of trust is one where, first of all, you as an investor can admit things you don't know and you, you, you kind of be quite open about the things you're good at, the things you're not good at, the things you ignore about a business. And likewise, create the conditions in which a founder is perfectly okay uh, to come to you with their major issues and things that aren't working inside the company. And I think to a certain extent, you want to do that before you invest. Um, and you're not trying to be a cheerleader for the business. In fact, you're trying to be a person who speaks truth uh, to the founder, even if the truth is uncomfortable. And what I do is before we invest, you know, we try and go quite deep into uh, some difficult topics about company building, even maybe have a disagreement or two and see how we resolve them. So I think one way to manage these situations is to avoid getting into them in the first place, which means have real, engaged, hard discussions before you put a check in um, so that you understand whether the person on the other side of the table is honest, open, transparent, coachable, can also stand their ground and disagree with you so it's not a rollover, or doesn't tell you what you want to hear but doesn't actually want to do it, right? So you try and make sure the relationship's real. Um, in cases where, you know, I've had a case where a founder... You're kind of misrepresented to the board, I guess, and try to be a bit of a hero. And the reality is, you know, trust gets broken. Um, and, uh, you know, our, everything we do is predicated on trust. And so when you really don't fundamentally trust the other party, you get a problem. Um, so I've had a few cases where, you know, company was clearly going to hit the wall because burn was out of control and, you know, product design wasn't wasn't really working. And, and you know, you, you sometimes you sort of have to step in and, and really have a, a very powerful, direct, engaged and somewhat unpleasant heart-to-heart -heart with the founder saying, look, I, there's too many patterns I recognize here. You're going to be out of cash in nine months, you know, on the back of a big round at a high valuation. What the heck are you doing? Uh, the ultimately, you know, the only thing you can do is replace the founder if you really have someone on your hands who's not either not ethical or or crazy or is not a, a good manager um if you can't do that and you've given your rights away because you let's say you came in and you know there's no board oversight over what the ceo is doing you're fucked but i think that these cases are so rare you know there's a we work and the, there are some founders that are either unethical or dishonest in the same way that some investors are assholes but you know focusing on these edge cases of extreme greed and extreme spend is is focusing on the one percent of outcomes right and so i just don't think it's helpful to draw conclusions from the industry as a whole based on theranos we work and the kind of horror stories that we've all seen and there are horror stories in business all the time you know unethical people who are amazing at fundraising raise too much money burn and crash it's like okay that's life you know i i just try and avoid getting into that kind of <laughs> situation at the beginning by being extremely careful about making sure i get into business with people whose mission and ethics and way of working i can appreciate in fact you know what we say with uh, with harry and what i've always said we never back businesses that we don't feel passionate about
So something looks like a money-making machine, but we think the he or she running it is an asshole. We just don't go in. Or uh, we think the company's mission, it's important not to be uh, virtue signaling about company missions because sometimes you try and do good things and technology ends up harming society anyway. But within reason, you know, we're very careful about the missions uh, of the companies that we back so that we really feel like we can put our weight behind it and be proud of the companies that we back and have a, an easier time recruiting for them. So I think... I think that's just how we operate. You know, back things we're passionate about, whose mission we believe in, with people we think are, you know, ethical. And we're not asking them to be, um, you know, to agree with us. We actually like people that are sometimes difficult and have a bit of an edge or come from the wrong side of the tracks and, you know, can be can be a bit hard to deal with sometimes. But what we do care about is is whether underneath what may be a difficult exterior, we have people who who are, you know, intellectually honest and trying to do the right thing. Right. And since uh, since you already started to, to speak about how you do things at uh, Stride VC, then uh, the question, uh, uh, the next question is uh, kind of obvious. So the whole reason of this uh, uh, opinion piece that we ran uh, to actually come by was that after the lockdown and the outbreak and the crisis started, the whole process of uh, cost cutting uh, has become much more important for uh, so many different uh, companies. And uh, so what actually has changed for a VC uh, like yourself? I'm not certain that anything's changed in the way VCs operate. What I think is very clear right now is we are faced with a crisis of unknown length and unknown depth. So one you know one of the things you care about with startups is you know at what level can they exit and how much do you own when they exit right that's your primary determinant of return but then the path to getting there is a path of you know refinancing in multiple rounds and you know how efficiently you use your capital so what's happening right now of course is you don't know when you're going to get refinanced you have no idea what valuations are going to get refinanced whether the capital markets are going to be open and so that's an awful lot of uncertainty in the path way towards an exit. So I don't think the long-term prospects of a lot of our companies is impacted, but it's like how much time does it take, how many financing rounds do we need to go through, and how hard are these financing rounds going to be from a valuation standpoint. So I, I think people just fundamentally reassessed their risk appetite in the face of, of that, which is very logical. Um, at the same time, you know, the I think the general view in the industry is that the venture vintage so 2020, 2021, should actually be really good for the venture industry because, you know, lower valuations, more capital efficient companies, uh, you know, this is a great time to invest. Now, the issue is, okay, you know, in the US, for example, seed funds, I think on average, the statistic for seed funds was that they have six to 12 months of cash on average. So there are people with large portfolios, you know, seed funds that have done 50, 60 deals that see that 40, 50% of the companies have less than six months of cash runway. Now, that is a that means your house is on fire, right? So there's a there's a number of your teams that didn't get funded before uh, before the lockdowns and that are going into a capital market that's making decisions much more slowly, that's been much more selective. And, you know, you are forced, no matter how much you love your founders, which, you know, most people I think do and they do care, you kind of forced to be a portfolio manager and to do what's called triage, which is a word I fundamentally dislike, but... The reality is people are sort of trying to p- 
pick amongst their children, uh, you know, which ones are going to survive and which ones they need to they need to let go. Um, I don't want to be overly negative on that in the sense that failure of a startup, well, it's not a happy event and people lose their jobs, is not the end of the world in the sense that people get recycled within the tech ecosystem fairly quickly. And in fact, you know, we see even vacancies uh, in, in tech startups in London, for example, are still pretty high. Um, so I think compared to other sectors, before we, we look at ourselves too much and say, how tough is this? You know, we actually have the benefit of being able to recycle our talent pretty quickly. So I think companies go bust, teams get reintegrated, maybe people start something new two years later. And we have this benefit of, you know, small, agile organisms that evolve all the time. And in fact, a lot of the companies, what they're doing right now is that they're learning from lessons of the past and saying, I'm going to make hard cuts early. Maybe I'll cut even deeper than I think is necessary because I don't know yet how bad the crisis is going to be. So let me make fairly deep cuts today. And then if and when I gain more confidence in how the market's recovering or my specific sector is doing or how I'm doing in terms of selling, I'll then rebuild uh, my talent pool. And so I, I think that a lot of people are just kind of hitting the brakes relatively hard, but hoping that they can start rehiring and regrowing the team uh, on, the way, on the way out. Right. And what, so what does it mean uh, for you? Do you focus on your portfolio companies right now or are you still looking for uh, new investments? So when the crisis hit, um, I looked at all the data to the extent that I could and I would kind of read voraciously about micro and micro impact. And, and, and very early in the crisis, I, I kind of realized this was going to be probably worse than 0103. I think with structural damage to the economy and and again this complete unknown on how and when you could uh, hope to return to normal so that information is getting disseminated in the market now i think a lot of people are realizing we're gonna have partial reopenings and it's gonna be a very long journey but so we decided at the time it's like hey i'm just not smart enough to process all that information like i don't have a mental model that allows me to deal with this so we just went on 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 pause and i think we're probably the only vc in europe who said you know hey look we're not investing for right now it also allowed us to be fully focused on the on our portfolio and our startups. And I think that what we try to do is not just, hey, let's look at the runway and the budget, but actually with a, with a, a number of them is to go one level deeper and say, you know, how do we reposition, for example, marketing, uh, our marketing and sales messages and the way we talk about our product in the face of COVID. Um, and, you know, we did fairly quick adaptation with a number of the companies on how they sell. And uh, some, we did some product reorientation. I think the, the thing that took time was to kind of allow yourself to go two or three levels deep inside these companies and do some actual work with them where it was useful uh, on top of of course checking what the budgets look like and, and kind of what actions needed to be taken now you want to do that well that takes time so we said look too much information coming in too fast every week plus our number one obligation towards our portfolio let's go on hold now we are um and we have started to look uh, at investments in fact we were making one uh which is post-covid uh which will be uh which i think is closing next week and so we are slowly uh re-engaging i would say in quite a careful way one of the things that I smile at is, you know, everybody's analyzing the thematics that are going to work well through the crisis and everybody comes up with exactly the same themes, right? It's like remote work and all that stuff. Now, if you're trying to fund remote work, I think there will be opportunities, but in reality, you should be a late stage fund 
already having identified the assets that are going to scale and dominate and you should be funding you know whether it's notion or the next zoom alternative but i, I don't think fundamentally for us as seed investors these these are not new themes these are 10 year old themes that are now gathering steam and, and gathering scale and so we kind of have to look beyond that at things that are sort of less obvious rather than go and plonk money into you know online groceries and remote work right Right. So have you been able to avoid the dreaded triage so far for your portfolio? Yeah, so we, we, we're lucky. I, I think you have to, VCs will sing a different song according to where they're at. So let's say, for example, your index or Excel, uh, you raise five to 600 million funds and you're vastly oversubscribed. It's quote unquote relatively easy for these funds to just actually support the portfolio because they have so much market power and so much dry powder. If you're a first-time seed funds who's at the last 10% of their investment cycle and you know, you've know you backed 30, 40 companies in the last two years when the market was hot, wow, man, you got a problem, right? You got a valuation problem because a lot of these companies are probably fairly highly valued and you've got a, you've got a funding problem because you probably have a bunch of hungry mouth Uh, coming back to market that you need to feed. Now, in our case, that's why I say it's kind of lucky, which is that you know we have done 10 investments. Um, eight of the 10 were funded into 2022 through a mixture of you know luck and preparation, I suppose. But you know, Impala raised 25 million. Uh, we're announcing a new round today that was signed before the before the crisis, which is an eight and a half million round for a seed company with a tier one fund. And so anyway, so eight out of 10 in our portfolio funded all the way out to 2022, one to mid 21, um, and uh, and only one that's really fundraising. So that's lucky. What we also did is we looked at, um, you know, there's a few companies in our portfolio that we are massive believers in that are doing really well. And so we did something that's not really part of our strategy, but we just doubled down into the ones that we thought were doing well. We have a couple that are really accelerating through the crisis. And we immediately went to see management and said, hey, you want a couple more million uh, just by yourself runway. And so you're very quick transactions uh, done internally, uh, but really on our, on, our best, on our best performance. So I think through a mixture of luck and preparation, we're actually in a good spot. But I mean, I, my heart goes out to the managers who, Like I said, our you know end of the fund cycle with a lot of highly priced companies, it must be a tough time. And by the way, <coughs> the problems get worse as the companies are more scaled up. So it's much easier to manage issues of burn and, and revenue decrease when you're a seed company. If you're a Series B company that just moved from 40 people to 80 people and your success is predicated on doubling or tripling your revenues this year, I mean, man, that's tough. Now, if you're a 500-person company uh, that you know whose revenues might go down 30% this year, I mean, that's really, really hard to manage. And I, I, I went through this in 2003, you know, after the last crisis, And it is soul-destroying to have to do layoff after layoff to see your revenues. I remember one company where had revenues of 25 million in 01, 20 million in 02, and it dropped to 15 million in 03. And it's a good company. We ended up selling it quite successfully. But I mean, oh my God, you know, you're like taking 10 million bucks of revenue every year when you think you're going to grow. And it was, it, was just a, it was just a long journey. And I think quite a lonely journey for the CEO. All right. Right. So to wrap this conversation up, I wanted to ask something totally uh, not related to the initial topic of today, but very much related to what we discussed here in this podcast with Robin, our editor a few weeks ago. And that's uh, 
about uh, uh, the VC behavior uh, in general on the market uh, with the pandemic uh, starting. What is a good way to make the information about these bad VCs public? Because I remember that you said before also on Twitter that you were against any sort of blacklists uh, which would kind of name and shame these uh, uh, VCs. Uh, why are you against it and what do you think would be a good way again? Well, so the, the first comment about VC behavior in general is that I think the industry has made a lot of progress compared to 10 years ago and that quote-unquote bad behavior, I'm hoping, uh, will not be as prevalent as it was in the last crisis, in, uh, especially after O2, um, because people have learned. Now, having said that, you know, I heard the story, for example, of a... Uh, of a VC that basically called or emailed, I think, two days before closing and effectively said valuations half. And, you know, didn't explain why, didn't sit down with a founder to say, hey, the markets have changed. Why don't we try and come to an agreed price that's different from the first price, which would have been a respectful way of negotiating, but basically told them, hey, you know, this is the new price. And then they had to be shamed and threatened by Matt Clifford and people like that to sort of say, Hey, you know, you can't behave like that. And then they ended up kind of agreeing on a price somewhere in the middle. But you can imagine the destruction of trust uh, amongst the parties there, because instead of having a grown-up conversation that said, hey, we'll reduce price somewhat, maybe we won't go down to full market pricing, so we'll share the pain, but why don't we readjust the terms in such a way that reflects what's happening in market and having a respectful conversation, it was kind of VCs trying to, quote-unquote, screw the founders. Now, so that behavior does exist. Um, the reason why I really don't like blacklist is because the nuances are really complicated. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I was involved in a company where we were doing a rescue bridge round. So there are four investors and, you know, Two of the investors, including myself, were sort of saying, look, let's just do a clean bridge. We either believe in the company or we don't. Um, and, you know, give ourselves enough cash that we can execute something meaningful for the company. And then two of the investors wanted multiple liquidation preferences. So they said, hey, you know, yes, we're putting a small amount of money, but we want the marginal return on our money to be, to be sufficient. And I would say at least one of the partners who was on the board was kind of being forced by his partnership to do it. I don't think he wanted to do it personally. Now, we ended up doing a multiple liquidation preference bridge because we needed three out of four investors to agree and we needed everybody's cash. So in that case, like, who do you put on your blacklist? Like, there is mm -hmm. no way in hell you're going to know who triggered the behavior. And, you know, we were just trying to save the company. So that's that would be uh, one example. I was involved in another company where we had two offers at some point. So one at $55 million pre, very clean. One at $70 million pre, not clean. I had a full ratchet. And for a variety of reasons, I actually went to a board vote. It's the only time in my career I've had a board vote. And I got voted down on taking the 55 million offer. Oh. Now, part of the reason is the founder didn't want to take a lower valuation. So he was pushing for the 70, even though I told him 15 times, I'm like, there is a full ratchet in there. We are in very uncertain territory. This thing could destroy you. So guess what happens? We get to the next round. There is a, effectively the equity got wiped out because with a full ratchet, if your next round valuation is less than or equal to the cash you've raised, the equity of the founders went to zero, like right. zero, right? And, uh, and it was awful. And so we, end, and we ended up having to put more money in as well. So again, who do you put on your blacklist? You know, this stuff, these blacklists are 
I think they're generally a bad idea. Uh, I think people don't understand the complexities and who's pushing for what. And sometimes founders shoot themselves in the foot and sometimes one rogue investor pollutes an entire deal. And so I just think I just think it's bad practice. I think you just have to go like do your diligence and understand situations and and not resort to these very simplistic uh, you know simplistic models because life just isn't black and white like that. Yeah, I do appreciate that there are these uh, complicated situations, but at the same time, I think for every one complicated situations like situation, there are like ten very simple situations when it's just uh, one VC who is doing something that's uh, uh, not a great thing to do to the founders. If you ask me honestly about specific people, I will tell you honestly what I think, and I think that this the best way. I think that is where reputation systems work. And, you know, you just have to do your diligence and talk to enough people. And I think founders should share, but people should avoid this kind of simplistic shaming methods. And I think half the time it's because people don't understand the dynamics of what happens. So I just I just don't think it's a good idea. I think you, you're going to get into business with people, reference them and, you know, understand why they acted in certain situations and then go ask them. You know, if somebody came and asked me, like, what happened uh, through the funding history of Company X, I would very openly ask them. And if I've made, sometimes I had to make some hard decisions in my life, I can explain why I decided to do what I did. And, you know, that will be a learning process as well for you to see whether people are forthcoming and honest um, and, you know, the kind of partners that you want. But blacklisting, I don't think so. Right, I understand. Okay, Fred, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is it for this conversation, but I do hope to uh, talk to you at some point soon, maybe after this whole thing is over to see uh, how the industry is uh, coming out of it. But for now, thanks a lot for joining and good luck. All right, my pleasure, Andrew. Have a good time. Now, let's move on to the second interview, uh, this time about why the governments, and the UK government in particular, should focus on supporting startups. This one is coming up after a word from our sponsor. TechEU podcast is supported by Lark. If you are managing a remote team, you might want to try this next generation office suite. Lark seamlessly brings together chat, video conferencing, documents, calendar, and so much more. You can enjoy smooth video calls for up to 100 participants with unlimited minutes and advanced screen sharing. Get started for free at larksuite.com slash techEU. Again, that's L-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. And it is time to introduce you the second guest of today's show. So my name is uh, Richard Muirhead, and uh, I'm managing partner at Fabric Ventures. Uh, and Fabric is uh, has been around a couple of three years now uh, and is is operating on a pan-European basis, but looking from a, a global perspective on, you know, what are the, the, the up-and-coming opportunities that entrepreneurs are targeting to back those entrepreneurs. Um, uh, ones, opportunities that are, we would say, you know, non-incremental, ones that perhaps require significant, you know, tech, you know, new technology applied to uh, embrace them. Um, and in particular, we talk about a wave of technology that we call and others call Web3, the third wave of the web, you know, which is this combination of algorithms and, and the proliferation of devices, but also um, this 
critical way of handling data in a more decentralized fashion, a new way of handling data that preserves you know, privacy for the individual. Um, and we think um, that is going to underpin a whole series of new applications in the coming period of time that are extremely exciting. So we're, we've got a portfolio of 22 companies. And my background was that uh, I'd previously been general partner for a, f- a few years with OpenOcean. OpenOcean um, invests in, uh, you know, delicious data-intensive startups, um, ones like Truecaller and, and Booksy and Supermetrics. Um, and then um, historically, I'd built a platform called Firestarter, which is really the predecessor to, to Fabric, uh, to invest in other companies like um, uh, CityMapper and Trey and, and Pusher. And um, uh, before that, I had two bouts, essentially, uh, building software companies, one in the era of the internet back in the late 90s, I built a, a piece of management software that is now owned by Oracle and still sold today uh, for telecoms providers to manage what was the new network back then, the IP network. And then one where I built quite early something that was a part of the DevOps you know, tool chain uh, that before DevOps was called DevOps and supported the move towards cloud uh, before cloud was called cloud. Uh, that was a company called Tideway, and we sold it to BMC Software, and that's uh, still being sold uh, very successfully, I believe, uh, uh, by those guys there. And my my background was in, as an engineer by training in university, and and I came pretty almost immediately into the, uh, the building startups back when I was uh, 20, 23. Right. So uh, when uh, when did you start in the industry? So that was 1995. I spent a couple of years doing strategy consulting with um, a group that was founded by Michael Porter, the Harvard Business School professor. Um, and they were like a, like a mini McKinsey strategy, strategy-focused uh, uh, consulting organization. I, I, I worked in a range of industries uh, from you know, insurance to, to Coca-Cola to um, telecoms, where I, I gleaned some insight into that industry to apply to the first software company. Uh, and also working on the frontier, I lived the best part of a year in Moscow back in the mid-90s, uh, but made a choice between trying to uh, do something meaningful in the Moscow real estate market uh, or building something uh, meaningful in the in the internet space. Um, and, and that was uh, the kind of the origins of my uh, first uh, company. Uh, I did have a stint actually in the context of a venture capital firm. I was very fortunate enough to uh, be introduced to the Axel Europe team and Kevin Camoli by Jim Breyer at Axel back in 2001 and helped set up the European office for them um, and then uh, incubated that second company, Tideway. Right, well, that, that must be an incredible experience over this past 25 years. And now we can uh, go back into the actual topic of the conversation, uh, which is the governmental bailouts and governmental support for startups. And uh, once again, the trigger uh, for uh, this conversation was initially the uh, post you published on Medium uh, that was titled Give Startups the Runway to Save Us. And I just wanted to ask if you could very quickly uh, walk me through your reasoning. Why do you think that startup support should be the focus of the government at the moment? Yeah, no, fair question. Look, I think the first reason, the first abiding reason that that, that the government should focus on this is that in, in terms of, think of it as, you know, bang for the buck, um, for at the moment what is being touted here is a £250 million investment in a context probably about of about £400 billion and growing for the rest of the economy, that startups are an essential ingredient of ensuring that we don't just fall back uh, on where we were historically, but take this as an opportunity to really leap forward, spring forward, and build progressive solutions to today's and and tomorrow's uh, problems. That may come partly through government-funded and corporate-funded projects, but a lot of the innovation is going to come from the experiments 
that we know of as as, as startups. And so, um, you know, if the choice is between say blank, you know, uh, directly, bluntly, you know, two cohorts or two vintages of this great um, uh, efforts by entrepreneurs and experiments they're doing to to create innovation and are being wiped out in, in, a, in a kind of like a blight of two these two vintages or preserving them and, and ensuring that they can benefit us in the years to come. That I think is, sh- you know, should be, there's a good rationale for ensuring that doesn't happen. I mean, in the context of the, the UK specifically, uh, you know, we operate on a European basis. Uh, there's a lot of uh, both very important collaboration between the different uh, startup um, uh, ca- ca- cities, should we say? So London, Paris, Berlin, you know, Zurich, Stockholm, Helsinki, and so forth. But Barcelona, Madrid. You know, the health of one city, I think, is a driver of the health of other cities across Europe. And indeed, healthy competition between the cities is good. And the other. Countries like France and, and Germany and, and Luxembourg, sorry, well, Luxembourg, but also uh, Denmark, have rolled out uh, their own such uh, support. And so I think it's important for the competitiveness of, of the ecosystem here to, to do similar. And London has, uh, to date, a special position as the, you could argue, the kind of VC and startup capital of Europe, uh, at, you know, writ large. And um, I think, therefore, as a component of that ecosystem, it would be uh, a shame to, to pull the funding at this point in time. Right. Then the, the the more important question, I guess, would be, why does it have to be the government? You are a VC. There are so many VCs in the UK, in Europe. Why don't you just uh, provide this uh, uh, bridge funding, these loans, these whatever sorts of support that you're looking for uh, from the government if you are so sure that your portfolio is going to be successful and make all these incredible changes? Yeah. So, look, um, just maybe tackling the government question first. I'm not sure whether I would classify myself as somebody who uh, tries to find a third way between socialism and capitalism. I think capitalism is an incredibly uh, powerful force uh, for, for good. It's, uh, I think someone said it's the way that we look after people that we uh, that we don't know. Uh, I think I um, picked that up actually a couple of times recently in some of the discussions going going on. And um, and entrepreneurs, you know, do that, and then the and capital circulating in the economy can. Uh, do that. Um, but I do, there is a, a phrase from uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who also I think was not seeking a third way and was a major supporter of capitalism, which is that, as he said, we want to draw a line below which we will not allow persons to live and labor, yet above which they may compete with all the strength of their manhood. And so the point is that, that there is some function at an individual level uh, and also at a corporate level for, of a safety net that can still retain the competitive nature of, of, of people's efforts to strive for excellence, you know, and, and to compete above that. I think that can be uh, absolutely achieved. And, int- and I think in the context of this money we're looking to uh, deploy here to startups, this is quite directly going to individuals as well. So it is often these are startups who are backed by angels with their individual private capital. That also, by the way, is one of the reasons why you might need to turn to government because they don't necessarily have the follow-on funding uh, to be able to support these startups going forward if they're suddenly, you know, their entire portfolio is, is in need or a large part of it. And, but it's also supporting very directly the founders who've staked an enormous amount of sweat equity and opportunity cost and, and often their own capital on building these organizations, these experiments. And then, of course, you know, whatever the, 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 the whole team size is, supporting those people who are on the, on the payroll. So it is quite directly in support of the, of the individuals to, you know, to allow them to, to fall back on the safety net uh, and actually be able to compete with the strength of their 
humanhood, if I can say that, um, um, above that level. So, so I think that's the kind of broadly the function of the government. And talking about VCs, why they wouldn't just immediately uh, step in. So, you know, VCs are obviously paid to invest other people's money and to think about that extremely, you know, diligently and professionally. Now, in a situation like this, it is it is clearly a fact that there is a rethinking of a number of different levers on the whole you know, venture capital model. It is now likely that it is going to take longer for your existing portfolio to reach fruition and to, and to exit, and they're going to require more money. It is now likely that expectations for the immediate valuation of these exits is going to come uh, down, and there's going to be uh, a reset of some valuations in the startup market. It is now just a fact that there is uncertainty and you have to spend time working with your portfolio and looking at their needs uh, and being intelligent and smart about, about driving that change. And it's non-trivial. I've been through that, you know, through at least two major downturns. Uh, it can be, it's a very important, it can be very emotional time for the startups and the startup founders, for certain, it certainly was for me. And all of this means that whilst I think venture firms are in business, there's a delay in deploying. And then there's less capital in their reserves to deploy. And so by necessity, they're going to be more focused on their portfolio and more select future investments at lower um, uh, lower levels. Um, and down the line, six months, 12 months, yes, these investors are going to be looking at these seed stage and early stage startups and making decisions about whether or not to back them. And that's an absolutely critical part of the kind of, if you will, Darwinistic process in the attrition. But to expect them to jump in right now and to allow and to to permit these companies, this this say one or two cohorts of of companies to kind of time travel six to twelve months into the future when some of that uncertainty has been dispelled, is is asking too much. It's just not going to happen. I see. And uh, uh, then another uh, uh, very short quote uh, from uh, your blog post was no hands out here, which basically means that you are saying that the government, uh, if it is to uh, support uh, all these uh, startups uh, there would be returns uh, to get and uh, at the end of the day it's not going to be that big of a problem financially for the uh, for the government for the country but i mean the statistics uh, is uh, not really supporting you in this case right like if you if you want to support all the early stage startups in the uk that are in need then i don't think there is a very big chance that you will get any returns at all if you don't uh, make any make any choices if you don't select and uh, whom you support well so maybe it's a salutary lesson to the average angel investor or seed investor but the the figures i normally refer to in the t on this topic are those of the kaufman institute from 2012 and so like there are like 1300 plus uh, companies at this stage um, that have been funded over the last couple of years. Those are the figures from Berenberg. And I understand from Kaufman that if you took an index, you just took the average of that entire uh, crop, if you will and made an investment. Yes, indeed, it is true that 60% probably will go to zero. Yes, indeed, it is true that the vast majority of returns will come from just, you know, a handful of those, uh, those investments. However, in aggregate, that index should deliver you, I believe the figure was uh, about a 20, 23% uh, return. So it is, it is the nature of the exp exponential returns that are possible from investing in this stage and and the benefit of taking a portfolio or indeed index approach that you can you have to apply that thinking to under to to um, harnessing and harvesting the benefit of those experiments in order to actually understand how it is possible to make a return and look I'm not I'm absolutely not 
uh, bashing, you know, grants given to other parts of the uh, the industry or of other industries, or you know, furloughing of workers, and you know, uh, or indeed, uh, uh, you know, hundred percent backed um, you know, civil loans that are, as in CBIL loans that are being uh, now, I think, progressed by uh, Mr. Sunak. But I think these are also essential. But it just so happens in this part of the economy, it is possible to make these loans through a, a convertible loan note. That's the proposed structure, and actually, the way it's come out is to have these be matched with investment from private quarters. And so that importantly, this means that the uh, burden for due diligence is going to really fall on other folks. Uh, we're optimistic uh, that it, it will be possible for it to support all of the different types of private investment uh, instruments that are out there, the ones that are tax, tax efficient still like EIS and the ones that are still equity. And that's something that, that, that you know, folks are working on and I'm, I'm trying to contribute to. And um, But also we're optimistic that it will be possible that the, the green light, if you will, for the government matching can be given uh, in advance, that this company is not only qualifying and eligible, but, but successful. Um, and that can help catalyze you know, any private capital that was wavering, who nonetheless, of course, will want to have done be doing their own uh, research and, and, and due diligence. So I think that's a pretty balanced, you know, uh, approach. You know, you have the benefit to innovation, you have the benefit to the economy, it should be a good investment, and we can structure it in a way that this could be done fast. Because, you know, I don't think we should forget, stepping back in some sense, again, when you hit a recession, when you hit a downturn like this for a startup who's trying to raise money, your revenue or your milestone growth can be directly impacted. The valuation multiples you get on any growth you're going to get, get impacted. Um, your, the, the speed of decision-making of your key, say, customer stakeholders. I mean, it can go from all guns blazing, moving forward in fifth gear to come back to us next year. I mean, devastating. And that's in a general recession or downturn. And, and unless you've been through one, it, it can it can be shocking because you always think, well, my, my software is helpful. It saves you money. It makes you more competitive. Surely this should still be done. But just just get cut, you know, cold. And and decision making just freezes what people worry about, you know, their jobs <laughs> and, and the share price. In this case, and not wanting to be too hyperbolic about it, whichever source you turn to, Ray Dalio, Fareed, Zechariah, you know, any of these guys, you have got, I think, what, what has been kind of dubbed a cascade of crises. You've got a health crisis. You know, you have um, then an unemployment crisis. Uh, you have the, the the recession on an economic basis. There's, you know, lower, um, you know, purchasing going on. You have, um, you know, quite possibly the repercussions of an oil price crisis. You have the probably the developing world health crisis that we haven't even seen. And, you know, whilst it is possible to retain the optimism, which is essential in our in our startup community, and think, okay, but maybe it will not be as bad as we think, and let's you know, think, you know, let let's let's cross our fingers and hope. We've seen off the chart, literally off the chart numbers on unemployment. I think it's what twenty million have leaped into unemployment in the U.S. And whilst China has come back with its economy, obviously we understand they've got no one to sell to now. <laughs> so they, you know, you know, I think it, it would be foolhardy not to try and put your exponential thinking cap on and try to get ahead of that curve, which is exactly what we would beseech our startup founders and CEOs to do, to try and think about the health of their companies. And I think the government has a role. Right. And uh, we're coming uh, to the next uh, question naturally, which is, what do you actually think of the package that uh, was announced uh, just this week? 
Yeah, no, so I think um, yeah, overall it's been, I think, a great you know success. A lot of people have contributed to it. I think it's great that it's happening full stop. I think there could be through this, uh, if not all of the 1,300 companies of this last two vintages, but several hundred that are supported. Uh, when you think about the size of this allocation and how what the appetite for these different companies would be. So, so the numbers are being run on that and that makes uh, sense. As I said, I think critically, if we can get it, uh, make sure it's possible for the government funded be greenlit before uh, the investment has been ama made and formally committed uh, by the private side of the house, then that can break an important catch-22 in people's decision-making. I think that is, that's a great function of you know, government uh, capital. Uh, I think that that match process also will ensure that we can have speed, you know, speedy due diligence. Uh, as, as also mentioned, you know, getting ahead of that, the curve here um, is critical. Um, it's not just about when startups run out of money. It's about the fact that as a, a responsible CEO and founder and board for one of these companies, you have to think about what your plans are to secure that money. And if you, so if you don't have clarity on what is going to be possible and how quickly, you have to make decisions earlier to tack other directions, to lay people off, uh, to, to disband what you're doing. And so speed really is of the essence. And I think it's been structured well for that. And there's more work going on to ensure in terms of distribution and decision making and the platform used to do that that will also be effective. Um, and I think we shouldn't forget that the measures around Innovate UK that have also been uh, laid out here to support R&D are, are also very important. And people are looking at, you know, down the track, further work on the, the uh, maybe the extension and, and the, you know, expansion of the EIS and SEIS schemes, although that's been something I've personally been looking at less. Right. So, and uh, just a very maybe stupid question, but still, uh, with this advanced green lighting of uh, co-investments and so on, how about the fraud issue? How do you? Uh, is there any way to make sure that it's not going to be just? Yeah, it's not going to be there. I, I think there are a number of ways in which you can guard about uh, guard against that. So, number one, there is at the very least, um, well, one of the proposals is to have a kind of a white list of existing investors um, who already who have already backed these startups um, that you are relying upon uh, uh, reputationally and the fact they already have, you know, skin in, in the game to ensure that there's a certain, you know, quality bar, not even quality bar, but fraudulence bar that is being met. The other is that is, there is a really, you know, fair degree of deterministic data you can get in terms of uh, who's on the payroll and and uh, you know tax related information and statutory accounts and so forth that can give clarity that this is a real you know extant business and the money has come in and and so forth and there's there's payroll to be met um, you can very quickly check that there's a, a kind of competent job of a business plan that has been put together these are quite deterministic clear simple criteria to meet and there is absolutely uh, being constructed a, an oversight, you know, from a more qualitative point of view of in individuals to be able to check that those have been met, and there's nothing that that looks bad uh, from that perspective. And I think the the matching uh, investment from other people on the private side coming in is also extremely important. You know, folks are not going to want to commit their capital to. Uh, an investment that they believe has any reason they have any reason to believe might be in the slightest bit fraudulent. So I think that's really going to be that the, there will be people who will try to to compete to attract this investment. But I believe that this will be within you know well above the bar of fraudulence. Um, uh, they'll be trying to present obviously in the best light the opportunity that their startup uh, uh, presents. So I think uh, that's 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 fine. 
Okay, clear. Uh, to wrap things up here, uh, just a uh, last question. So what I hear and I, what I read uh, a few times already is that even this 1.25 billion pound uh, package might not be enough for the uh, scale-ups for the companies that are much further down the line and that are also looking for support right now, but on a much larger scale. So what uh, what, what do you say to that? What uh, do, do we need another, yet another support scheme for these companies? Uh, the one word answer I would get is yes. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in my um, my blog post, I and I made the case that now is, you know, not the time for, for really for either or, that you, you have to support, you know, uh, no, it's a whole nation effort, a whole you know European Union um, effort to support all of the aspects of the startup ecosystem. Uh, you know, you have one chink in the armor, and that the interreliance means things break break down. Um, and so, you, and for sure, uh, we should support the scale ups, and this that might require more capital. Maybe that's a billion pound fund or more, three billion. And these companies, whereas the startups uh, might represent six to ten thousand. Employees, um, and in the future, you know, fifty to one hundred thousand, let's say, in the coming years, you know, this is obviously many, many more hundreds of thousands of, of, of companies that are more mature. But it also can be much more uh, brutal and hard to cope with when you have a sudden change in your the accuracy of your forecast. Should we say when you're already spending very significant amounts of money per quarter? I had the experience in the beginning of the great financial crisis of my bookings sales bookings of software going from one quarter that was close to $6 million of bookings, expecting the next quarter to be $9 million and coming in at less than $1 million. So this was extremely painful. And it was then compounded by the fact that the venture debt we'd lined up prior to the round we'd been closing uh, just by def default pulled out. So we had a hole in the balance sheet. And then, you know, we had corporates who were looking to do strategic investments from actually SAP and Cisco and others. And they were uh, extremely keen and positive uh, in, from one moment. And the next moment, of course, they had corporate balance sheets to look after and they 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 were pulling out. So I'm highly empathetic with the problem at the scale-ups stage. I think then though there are bespoke solutions as these companies have become mature and there are different sectors, fintech, health tech, and so forth. There may be bespoke solutions that uh, make sense. But at the end of the day, the fact that there are more of these companies tracking towards being billion dollar successes and unicorns, you know, say, especially in the fintech area in the UK than elsewhere is 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 a kind of a positive problem to have, you know, if you will. But I, I you know, I, I, I understand people are looking at this and I, you know, hope that we're successful in securing support. Understood. Right, Richard, that's all we have time for today. So thanks a lot again uh, for joining. Thanks a lot and good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you. And I'd, I'd just like to mention, importantly, that uh, that uh, the work in this area on the Future Fund, you know, Dom Hallas at Kodak uh, and indeed John Spindler at Capital Enterprise and Brent Hoberman and the whole team at Spencer Crawley at First Minute uh, uh, and Daniel Korski are, are, are real kind of uh, pivotal players in making this happen. I've just been trying to assist as much as I can around the edges. Perfect. Thanks a million. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Now, before we wrap things up, let me take a minute for another shout out to our sponsor, Lark. If you are managing a remote team, as many of us do these days, you want to try Lark. It's got everything you need, chat, video conferencing, docs, calendar. You can sign up for free and receive 200 gigabytes of cloud storage, calls for up to 100 participants and chat groups of up to 5,000 people. Get started for free at larksuite.com slash techEU. Again, that's L-A-R-K suite.com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. Thank you, Lark, for supporting TechEU podcast. 
And this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast.tech.eu. I would love to hear your feedback. For now, wherever you are, we hope you can stay safe and take care of yourself and people around you. Have a good week and I'm going to talk to you soon for an interview special episode. Bye-bye.